talking about uh, coming out of slavery, coming out of an attitude of slavery, and stepping into the attitude where we know we are sons and daughters of the living God. At the same time, we've, we've seen the scripture where <laughs> Jesus says, I don't call you slaves anymore, I call you friends. Three or four verses later, he says, here's why you do this, because a slave's not greater than his master. And you go, you just said we weren't slaves. But then you said we were. Well, we understand through the scriptures and we've been learning that you have become a son. You are not a slave that doesn't know what the master is doing. You're not a slave that has no, no, no power to overcome the bondage of sin. No power to overcome the bondage in the, the course of this world. You're a son or daughter of the king. And you have a different position now. And yet in that position, we have been able to say, I submit my will to you. Master, I submit my will to you, Father, and I know that it's safe. When I submit that to you, oh, I know it. I, you, you love me enough that I don't have to be concerned. And that's another thing that we need to deal with as sons and daughters who are also bond slaves of Christ. You've got to know that uh, this is something you've, you've got to think as a son or a daughter in the way that the Father thinks about you. Because I see through the scripture, especially throughout this New Testament, you see how the father relates to you. And it is, it is a, it's a father that loves you very much. That cares about you more than you care about yourself. And that changes everything. Because there is a matter of trust that comes up here. We, we read about Jesus. And in fact, Peter talks about Jesus. If you ever read the book of 1st and 2nd Peter... Which I say if you ever read it. Of course, you guys are word people. You've got that book. and you, I, I trust that you're reading every bit of, uh, of this word. But uh, First and Second Peter are interesting books. Because they're written to a, a persecuted church. Uh, very persecuted. You have strange statements like, Honor the emperor. Right, right in the middle of Nero's persecution. Peter says, Honor the emperor. At the same time, he calls Rome Babylon, the evil system, the, the evil empire. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's, it's not good. And yet at the same time, he says, even though this, the system is evil, the, the empire is wrong, he says, honor the emperor, and in so doing, you honor God. There's a balance that we find as believers in this, in this world where we understand we're not of it. We're aliens, we're strangers, and uh, God is showing us and teaching us how to live, how to really live, not just fake live, but really live. And so in First and Second Peter, written to a persecuted church, they, they're looking for hope, they're looking for strength, they're looking for explanation. Why? What do we do? Why is this happening? And Peter says, you only have to look at your example, Jesus Christ. You only have to look at him and know exactly what to do. And he says, he says in, in, in this case, when Jesus suffered, even though he did nothing wrong, he was mistreated. Peter says, if you were to do something wrong and were mistreated for doing something wrong, that's not so bad. You know what I mean? If people, if people treated you badly because you really did something wrong, that'd be one thing. He said, but when you're mistreated for doing right, it finds favor in the eyes of God. And he compares it to Jesus, who, though he did nothing wrong, was mistreated, was slandered, was, was abused. And it says, but he kept trusting, entrusting himself to the living God. 
And that is a wonderful thing to know that Jesus, through all of this, even when, when everything was against him, he trusted God. He trusted the love that God had for him. He trusted the Father enough to say, I'm safe in his hands. No matter what's going on around me, no matter what's swirling, I know that God has not abandoned me. Even at that moment on the cross when the Father turned his face away. And Jesus cries out the words of the psalmist. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet his last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. He never stopped trusting God. And when he was in the garden, we see a beautiful image that, that is our standard for the rest of our lives. Where we see Jesus and we, we come to know for maybe the first time. Well, we don't because he said, I do nothing on my own initiative. In other words, my will is not the issue here. I do everything the Father says to do. I say everything he tells me to say. But we see a great illustration of it when he kneels down in the garden and he says, not my will, but yours be done. And we find out Jesus had his own will. You probably already knew that, but it's, it's really illustrated there. His will wasn't automatically the same as the Father's, but he submitted his will to the Father's so much so that you couldn't tell the difference. So much so that when they said, show us the Father, he says, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That means his will was so camouflaged in the Father's will. He had lost himself in the identity of the Father that you no longer could recognize a separate Jesus from the Father. He proved our example. If you want to know, if you're reading the word and you say, okay, I'm a son, but then it says so many times, I'm, I'm a bond slave, I'm a bond servant of Christ. How do I be both? You have no further to look than Jesus Christ. He is your example. The problem is, is that I, some people misguided they, as they may be. They may look and see the word slave in the scripture and then they see themselves as that and they, with good intention, say, okay, I'm a bond slave of Christ. I'll do whatever he tells me to do. I'll go wherever he tells me to go. But they forget the love of the Father. And they go and they just assume that God is using them as a pawn, as cannon fodder that he doesn't care about. And they have this complex, some call it a martyr's complex, where it's almost like we get badges for how pathetic we are. But you know, the martyrs in the scripture didn't have a martyr's complex. <laughs> they look up with joy. They know that they've never been abandoned. It's going to mess with your head to understand. I am, I've submitted myself to him as a slave to a master, yet I'm still a son, and he loves me like a son. He never loves you like a slave. He loves you like a son. And that is absolutely imperative because if you can say, as John said, we have come to know and to believe the love of God which he has for us, then you will gladly throw your will to him and say, do whatever you want because you know he can be trusted. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. We've said this many times, but it is such a powerful thing that he doesn't just say, I know what I've believed. And a lot of Christians can say, I know what I've believed. I know my doctrine. I know my theology. But do you know whom you have believed? Because Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. And I know that he is able 
and he's faithful. He's able to guard what I have entrusted to him. You have to be firmly planted in the faithfulness of God, in the covenant that God has made with you, that you won't be shaken from it. And there'll be no fear, no doubt when you say, do whatever you want with my life, because you know that he loves you more than you love yourself. You could be the most selfish person in the world and still not love yourself as much as he loves you. You could be the biggest egotist in the world. Think you're God's gift to humanity and still not match his love for you. You could think of the best plans for your life. They would never match his plans. It's just that our understanding of what best is is based on what we can just see right now. His understanding is from a broad perspective. And he looks and says, no, I know what's best for you. It's not that. It's not as we thought as kids when our parents said, well, I know what's best for you. You're like, yeah, right. <laughs> you may think I was a bad kid, but I wasn't. I, I really, I did believe my parents were incredibly intelligent, but when they, you know, I, I know what's best for you. And I'm always like, well, there's always a part of you in the back that goes, do they? Because it seems to me that what's best for me is to play another hour of Nintendo But I know now they were right. I know now. (laughs) Thank you, Mom. I know now that they were right. It took me a while to figure it out. And it's it's so much bigger when you think about God. It is He has such an understanding. He is He's not just seeing into the future. He's there. (laughs) You know, it's not like He's peering through a ball like some character in a cartoon and going, "Ooh, I see what's coming. It's cloudy, but I see it." Now He's there right now. He's all over time. He is not restricted to time. And if you think about that too long, you want to take a nap. <laughs> but he's not. He's already played the game. He's never played the game. It's never been a game, but he's already been there. You have a free will. I do believe that wholeheartedly. You're making the movie. God's already seen it. So he's already prepared paths for you to walk in. He's predestined things for you. And you can choose to obey or disobey. There's multiple paths, and he has multiple paths to get back to the original path. Thank God he's a merciful God. So we have to understand that we are loved and that we are sons. And though, though we submit our will, we're not, the, we're not the cheap little pawns that you didn't care, the little army men that you didn't care about when you played army men, if you played army men. It, we're, not the, we're not just the, the, the peons that he goes, yeah, I can, I can waste a few of these. I'll keep my prize possessions for later. You're not that. So the attitude of, well, Lord, use me for whatever you want to use me. I'm nothing. My life is nothing. Quit saying your life is nothing because that minimalizes the sacrifice that Jesus made. He died for something. The cost for your life was was great. Don't say I'm nothing. nothing. You're nothing without him. But you're not without him. So understand he places a great value on you. Precious. In the eyes of God are the death of his saints doesn't mean he loves it. It means it costs him something. He views it as, as big, not a slight thing. So when we say, God, I'll do whatever you want. 
the old attitude used to be. <laughs> you say that, and God is going to send you to the outhouse of the world, you know? And, and he, you know, he just is just so eager to just humiliate you that, uh, that he'll just, you'll be miserable the rest of your life, but in the sweet by and by, oh, you'll, you'll have your reward. Well, you know what? This life isn't always going to be easy. There are things God's called you to, missions God's called you to, where the stronger you get, the more grown up you get, sometimes the harder things get. And yet at the same time, there's a joy that is inexpressible and it's full of glory. There is a strength that you can't ever muster up on your own. There is a life that flows out of you in the midst of prisons, in the midst of of, of abuse, in the midst of slander that nobody can quite understand. But this is the God we serve. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And when, when, when the same writer, when Peter writes, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in the proper time. You look at that. We know to humble ourselves, right? But we have to remember that to humble, the point of us humbling ourselves is so that He can exalt you at the proper time. That we serve a God that does want to exalt His people. And in doing so, He exalts Himself. Because they carry His name. That's why you humble yourself. And we'll we'll look at Philippians 2, which you're very familiar with, I'm sure. We'll look at Philippians 2 tonight, a little bit later on, where where we understand it's all about um, laying down your identity and, and being given another one. Which is great. He doesn't leave you identityless. So he doesn't leave you just humble. And it says, and he will exalt you at the proper time. And the next verse says, does anybody know what the next verse is? Casting all your cares, all your anxieties onto him. For he cares for you. I've probably said this a dozen times from this pulpit. um, But I'll repeat it because it changed my life. I used to read that. And, and picture God. You've heard me say this before. I used to picture God taking my cares that I cast to him, crumpling them up, throwing them over his shoulder into the sea of forgetfulness, and there they were gone. And part of my worry was, yeah, but somebody needs to handle that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, you're worried about your bills, and I come over to your house and you go, you've got bills? <laughs> Man, it's been stressing me out all week. I've got these bills. I don't know how to pay them. Give them to me. Really? You mean it? Yeah, give them to me. (sighs) Light them on fire. Throw them in the sink. There, not a problem anymore. No, man. Still a problem. (laughs) But that's not what God does. It says casting your cares onto him, which once it was explained to me that that was a, a phrase used often to transfer a load from one animal to another animal, that, that it, was, it was a transfer of a burden, not a, not a destruction of a burden, but a transfer of a burden. And that the next phrase he says, for he cares for you. Making him the Lord of your life did not just mean you were bossed around for the rest of your life. Making him the Lord of your life made him in charge of everything that includes your debts, that includes your worries, that includes your hurts and your enemies and all these things. You gave it all to him. And I can't walk in unforgiveness anymore because he owns those debts. 
He bought me, and when he bought me, he bought the debts that were owed to me and owed from me. So, if somebody owed me something, when I said, you're the Lord of my life, I gave up the right to be mad at them, to walk in unforgiveness, because now I've been forgiven much. I can't hold unforgiveness against anyone else. He owns those debts, and he can do whatever he wants with them. And should he, like he did to the Assyrians in the time of Jonah, should he choose to completely wipe out the debt and show mercy to the people who have wronged me the most, it still won't even come close to matching the mercy he's shown me. So I have no complaint. I can only rejoice. But when you cast your cares, remove, transfer your cares onto him, it says he cares for you, which implies he will care for those things. He will take care of it. He will handle it. I had a brief moment of lapsing this week where I started to go, oh no, there's so much, oh, there's so much to do. Uh, uh, you know, what about this? What about that? And I had to get preached to by my wife. And uh, thank God for a godly wife that can preach to you. And she told me all about casting my cares on Jesus. And I listened. I don't know if I had the nice face on the whole time, but I did listen. <laughs> and by the end of it, I wasn't stressing anymore. So thank you, Tina. There's, a, there's always a power in having a buddy, whether it's your spouse or somebody else. If you were married, it should be your spouse. I'd hope it'd be your spouse, but not every situation is perfect. But even if you're not married, having somebody that can encourage you. You know, David encouraged himself in the Lord, and we are supposed to be able to do that, but it, it is helpful to have somebody that can... Uh, that can talk to, you, talk to you and say, listen, stop this whining. <laughs> Quit whining. <laughs> Pick yourself up. Cast your cares onto Jesus. Thinking as sons. Can I read you something for a moment before we go to Philippians? Uh, this is uh, a book that I have. It's, it's by a historian called Herodotus. He is known as the father of modern history because he was the first person to really put history into a narrative form. Uh, this was written about 450 years before Jesus came along. Not this book, just the, the actual book. This is a reprint. I do not have a 450-year-old book that I bring to church. Not that 450, I'm sorry, 2,450-year-old. <laughs> this is merely a reprint, but it's word for word. And so this was written about the time that... Uh, Esther and Nehemiah, right between Esther and Nehemiah. And uh, you've heard me talk about the Scythians, right? Uh, Colossians 3, Paul says there's no difference between you, the Jews, Greeks, barbarians, slaves, Scythians, slave free, but Christ is all, Christ in all. Uh, the, Herodotus has a, has a whole book on the Scythians. And uh, there's one interesting story that I thought I'd read you. They were nomadic people. They were quite barbaric um, and they loved to go on raiding parties and long campaigns of war. They were, um, you know, came out of the Russian steppe region right now, the, the steppe regions of Asia, which is now part of Russia. And um, one time they came back from a long, a long season of campaigning and uh, came back to find something that wasn't too pleasant. They'd left their slaves at home, and uh, their slaves had... Uh, started messing with their wives and started saying, no, we're in charge now. So they came back and found that their 
slaves had taken their wives and everything else. So they fought with them. And, and let me read you what it says. It says, The Scythians attempted to invade the land. They took up a position against them and fought. And as they fought many times, and the Scythians were not able to gain any advantage in the fighting, one of them said, What a thing this is, is that, this that we're doing, Scythians. We are fighting against our own slaves. We are not only becoming fewer in number ourselves but by being slain in battle, but we're also killing them. And so we shall have fewer to rule over in the future. Like, this is a lose-lose for us. We're dying, and our slaves are dying. We can't win. Now, therefore, I suggest that we leave spears and bows, and that each one take his horse whip to go up close to them. For so long as they saw us with arms in our hands, they thought themselves equal to us and of equal birth. But when they shall see that we have whips instead of arms, they will perceive that they are our slaves. And having acknowledged this, they will not await our onset. The Scythians proceeded to follow his advice, and the others, be, the slaves, being panic-stricken by their actions, forgot their fighting and fled. Thus the Scythians had ruled over Asia, and in such manner, when they were driven out by the Medes, they had returned to their own land. So <laughs> let me sum that up for you. These slaves are fighting pretty well. They're coming out, and every day they're doing battle, and these warriors are saying, this isn't working out for us. And the one guy says, wait a second. As long as we keep coming with, with our swords and our bows and our spears, they think they're equal to us. Let's bring the whips. And they'll remember that they're our slaves. And so they did. And the slaves go, oh, no, playtime's over. Okay, whatever. <laughs> we quit. All right, I'm sorry. And I thought, whoa, doesn't this just show us the way we can be sometimes? When you remember your place in Christ, you stand up, you fight, you'll stand your ground. But the minute you start thinking you're a slave, the minute he can convince you that you are a slave, treat you, I'm talking about the enemy, treating you like you are just a little slave again, you'll run away. You'll be weak. You'll act like a slave. As long as they saw themselves as equal, they fought. As soon as they started thinking of themselves as slaves, they ran away. It is absolutely important that you understand that you are from the same stock as Jesus himself. And that you're not expected to do anything he didn't do. He is our Lord. He will always be our Lord. He will always be our head, the head of the body. And yet, he said, follow in my footsteps. He is, a, we are his body. We're not just a body like a Siamese twin, like a weaker Siamese twin that's, a, that's attached to a stronger guy. And he goes, okay, just try your best. No, we are actually his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So, if we are his body, he does not have another body, does he? Do you think he has another body that he uses uh, if, if the church is the body of Christ, I'm talking about the whole church, the whole church, not just a certain group of people that meet in a certain building, but the whole church is the body of Christ. <laughs> do you think he's got a separate body in case we just don't do it? <laughs> like he goes, I wanted to use you guys, but really, that's the best you can do. Okay, I'm using my other body. This is the one I get to control fully. This is my, this is my special body, plan B for when you guys mess up. No, he's only got a, the one body. Yeah. 
So he doesn't have a more powerful plan than to use you, than to use his people. We are his body. So the more and more we put ourselves down and go, well, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. That's I mean, Jesus could, but I don't know if we can. Well, Jesus wants to do these things, but he doesn't have another way to do them. He has he has of his own will bound himself to you and said, I'm going to use my people to accomplish my will in this age. And that is a huge responsibility, but responsibility that does not come without power. Let's turn to Philippians 2. I'm saying all this so that you can understand the perfect balance between a a son who is all son. You're not just half son, half slave. You are all completely the children of God. You've been completely adopted. And yet, as sons, we say, who, who have we but you? Where else would we go? Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Use me. Do it in my life. I don't want my own plans. I don't want my own dreams. I want yours. And he'll do it. Philippians 2. He says this. We're going to go start in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Share his attitude, share his mindset, share his thought. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or robbery, a thing that he had to take. He already had it. He was equal. But watch what he did. Here's the attitude. He emptied himself. He laid it aside. He, everything he could have been on his own, he put aside. God did not empty Jesus. People did not empty Jesus. Circumstance did not empty Jesus. Jesus emptied himself. Do you think he walked around empty? No. But because he emptied himself, he was full of the Father. He was full of the Spirit. Because he had no will of his own. He had his own will, but he refused to follow it. He refused to let it be I mean, and when he says, here's what makes me happy, here's my food, here's what gives me life, here's what satisfies me to do his will and to accomplish his work. He says this, it says this, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. This is that word, which could be translated bond slave, slave itself. He took the form. Doesn't say he was, doesn't say he became a slave, but he took the form of a slave. Even though he was a son, he took the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Once again, he humbled himself. 
what he could have been. Listen, even some of his own disciples wanted to put him on the throne physically. They were willing to fight for him. They were willing to die for him. You remember one of his disciples was named Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot. That wasn't just he was passionate for God, went to every, went to all the youth conferences and jumped at the front. He was a rebel against the Roman government. He was a man who wanted to overthrow the Romans. That's what the word zealot meant. Now, there could have been different definitions of zealot. I'll give you that. But from my study in that day and age, if you were called a zealot, it meant one thing. You were looking to bring back the kingdom of Israel. You were looking to restore the kingdom of Israel physically. So... uh, He's one of the 12. And you you imagine he looks at Jesus and he goes, when are we going to do this? When Jesus goes to the garden, they go, how many swords do we take? Two enough? (laughs) And and you know what? I mean, Peter Peter totally misunderstands. He misunderstands coaches' signals every time. And he's like, he's like, okay, now's the time. We're going to cut some... Heads, I mean, he missed and cut an ear, but we're going we're gonna to do something here. Now's the great battle, the final battle. This is when Jesus becomes king of kings, lord of lords. This is our moment. And it isn't. So then he dies. And he's risen again. And they go, so, <laughs> even after he's risen again, they're like, so, when are you doing this kingdom thing? <laughs> like, is it now? Because now you're walking through walls, and i got to say, it's a good time to do the kingdom thing. (laughs) And he says, not for you to know that. So he had the people that could have put him on the throne, that could have exalted him, but he did not take that that tact. He didn't go that way. He did not not say, this is what I want to do. He says, no, 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 I'm going to do what he wants me to do. And listen, if you read John 14, you read, read his words about Jesus, you read John 14 through 17, you see him say several times, the Father loves me. He says, if you keep my word, the Father loves you. He loves you just as much as he loves me, and I love you like he's loved me. Oh, he says in John 15, abide in that love, dwell in that love. And when you are so, you're so full of the knowledge of his love for you, then you'll do anything. You'll go anywhere because you can trust him. He is not just, he's not just throwing you to the wolves. You know that he cares. So Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Hebrews says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Isn't that a shocking thing to read? That Jesus had to learn something? Doesn't mean he didn't know it. Doesn't mean he didn't understand it. But he walked it. And there's a new level of learning that he's talking about when he walked it out. He qualified himself to be our high priest by walking out what you'd have to walk out and more. By being tempted with everything you'd have to be tempted with. And what was one of the biggest things that he was tempted with? It wasn't going, one of the biggest things he was tempted with wasn't going out and sleeping around. I'm sure he was tempted with these things. But the biggest thing he was tempted with was I'll give you all the kingdoms. 
Everything you see, I'll give it to you. Then he rejected him. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There is no further point of obedience than death itself. Even death on the cross, so not even a glorious death, but to the world a very shameful, humiliating death. One that would discredit your ministry. To be tried and slandered and put put on the worst. I mean, the electric chair is much better than the cross. To be treated like the worst kind of criminal. It's like sending Jesus to Guantanamo Bay and then torturing him to death. He didn't suffer a glorious death by sword or death by even stoning, but death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God also highly exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen. He says, had this attitude that was in Jesus. He took off his name. He took off his reputation. He took off his will. He took off all of this and took on the form of one who was bound to the word of the Father, bound to the will of the Father. And what was God's response to further just, just, just further humiliate him, further slime him into the mud? No, there was a time of humiliation, but the reason he had to be humiliated was for you. The shame he bore was yours. The disgrace he bore was mine. He went to the cross for us. And yet, here's the result. God did not leave him low, but highly exalted him and gave him a name. When you take your name off, you're given his name. You leave your name on the mud. We've talked about this uh, probably a couple years ago. You leave your mud, you leave your name down. You leave your reputation. And you, you say, God, everything I have, I count it all as lost compared to knowing you. You're the only thing that really matters. You're the only opinion that really matters in my life. And honestly, Saul doesn't, doesn't count for anything if I don't have you. So everything everybody else thinks about me, all the, the degrees I have, and all the, the great reputation I've earned, and the salary and everything else, I, I, I lay it at your feet. You do whatever you want. And he doesn't leave you empty. He says, okay, take my name. Take my name. Take my identity. Take my purpose. Take my heart. Take my spirit. Take my love. As you walk this earth, you don't walk as somebody with their own agenda. You gave it up. No agenda. No rights. You have all the rights in the world. But I'm asking you to give them up. God will not force you To do his will. But you can do nothing better. Than to say. Give it to you. You give up your rights. You give up your dreams. 
You let him dream through you. That's the thing. He doesn't cause you to stop dreaming. You notice the minute you give up your own dreams, you start having more dreams you ever had before. The minute you give up your idea of what your life should be, he gives you a much better idea of what his life is. And all of a sudden, you, you've got dreams. You're expanding with vision. All of a sudden, you're, going, you're waking up excited to breathe because you've got what he put inside of you. And you're interested about the king. Your, your, your pursuit is the kingdom. Your pursuit is not your own name. Your pursuit is not your own reputation, your own, your own fame or anything else. You want the kingdom. You want the same thing he wants. And then you find these friends. Hey, all of these buddies here that have the same goal as you. Because they just want what God wants too. And there's a bond that you never could have with anyone else. I have found a greater bond with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I ever thought possible. Because we're not going for our own deals. We're not after our own stuff. We're not after our own reputations. Because at some point, you'll have friends in the world. And at some point, you're going to lock horns because what you want and what they want are not going to match. You're going to want what you want for you. Because we're going to get back to that. Remember that old... What the flesh wants. And the flesh is just like Darwin's law, man. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. This, the flesh just wants, I'm not saying Darwin was right. I'm just saying it's like nature. Strong one survives. And you get in the flesh and you just want to promote yourself. You just want to win. And you get, you submit yourself to God and you say, you know what? You have everything. You've got it. You've got it all. Then all of a sudden you've got friends that have the exact same goals as you. The verse we didn't read right before we started in Philippians 2 said, have the same mind, united in spirit, united with one purpose, intent on the same goals. Let's read the rest of this. So then, verse 12, my beloved. Do you hear that? My beloved. Just as you have always obeyed. Because obedience has got to come. If it's going to be in the spirit, obedience has got to come from a place where you know that I'm obeying as beloved. The scripture says that. Follow God, imitate him as beloved children. When you know you're loved, you'll do anything. You'll go anywhere. Once you know you're loved by the Father, you'll do anything. Because you know what? You're convinced he'd never tell you to do something that's not for your own good. Beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That fear does not mean to to walk around like a scared little mouse, always flinching at things. This means that you understand how great this salvation is. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation because there's nothing you could do to earn that. There's no way you could do it. You'd have to have something as valuable as what Jesus did. In order to earn something, there has to be equal value, right? I, if I want to earn $10, I've got to do $10 worth of work. You got any work that you can do which is worth as much as Jesus' sacrifice? You have any work you could do which is worth as much as the debt you owed? No. So there's no way you could possibly earn that. So that's why he doesn't say work for it. He says work it out. It's in you. You have that salvation inside you. He died to give it to you. You've been saved, so now work that out. Work it out. Walk it out. 
Live it out. What's inside, let it come out. With fear and trembling, that means with such a, 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 such a gravity. to the, This is huge. This is way bigger than I could imagine. Don't do it lightly. Don't think of it lightly. But think of it as as powerful as it really is. As Hebrews says, Hebrews calls it so great a salvation. When you realize how great that salvation is, you take it seriously. And sometimes it causes you to just like, wow. And he says this. For, listen, lest you think this is all about you working harder. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. It's God who's at work in you. So when you're working out salvation, it, it, God's already in you. He's already working through you. He's doing the work through your hands, your feet, your lips, your thoughts. He says, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I thank God for the will part because it's not fun when you're just doing work and you don't want to do it. You've got no desire, but you know you have to do it. Does anybody like that? If you liked it, by definition, you'd be doing something you like, so you'd disqualify yourself from that statement anyway. So that we're, talking about so we're, we're talking about a God that puts the will inside of you and then does it through you. Does it get any better than that? This is just the best. He, he gives you the will to walk out his will. Now, all of this comes from having the same attitude as Jesus had. And when you do, he wills through you. He works through you. And I think this means that slowly, the more you give up of your own identity, Because see, listen, the identity you're giving up is not near as good as the identity he's giving you. It's not near as good. He's giving you a way better identity. We look at this and go, oh, God, what a horrible scripture. Man, I got to give up my identity. I got to give up my rights, everything. Oh, there's got to be a country song for this. But uh, it's, it's way better. It's like he says, you know, your clothes are looking pretty dirty and ratty. Just go in the change room, take them off, and I'm going to hand you mine. Well, I have to give up my clothes. You don't understand. Every hole has a story. And it smells. It smells like my first job at A&W, and I don't want to give it up. Goes, but but these clothes will last you forever. And you could never afford these clothes. This is like tip top. You walk in these clothes and everyone will know you're a son of the king. But can I keep both? No, you can't keep both. I don't want to keep. I like my clothes. You'd be an idiot. He says, lay it down. He says, and then what, what happens is your once you've laid your will down. And your work down. He does his will. And his work in you. Now listen. If it is God who is work in you. Both to will. If it's his work in you to will something. Doesn't that mean. You've had to give up your own will. 
Because the scripture says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So if you had two different wills warring against each other, you're going to be miserable. But Jesus in the garden laid down his will. He didn't go to the cross going, this wasn't my idea. If you're the son of God, save yourself. I would, man. That's a good idea. But I sign on to this thing and the big guy upstairs make me do it. It says, after this, it says, I mean, he laid himself down. He said, listen what he said. You can't kill me. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own will. Oops. It was my will to lay my life down? No, no, no. Jesus, you can't say it's your will now. You just said not your will. Aha. He laid his will down and the father's will became his will. So then he says, I lay my life down of my own will. It's my will because he gave me. He's at work in me to will. He's at work in me to want to do what he wants to do, to love who he loves, to 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 go where he wants to go, to speak what he speaks. Uh, He's at work in me. You can't look at Jesus as a puny little slave, a little a little spider in God's grand scheme of things, some pawn that God doesn't care about. No, you look at Jesus and you say he was precious to the father. He was loved by the father. You are the same. Yet Jesus was completely bound to the will of the father. He did nothing of his own will. Hey, this isn't a bad deal. He says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because grumbling and disputing means you've held on to your will. You still haven't traded it in. Grumbling and disputing come when you do have two wills battling against each other. When you're doing what somebody else wills you to do, but your will still isn't in line. Then what do you do? You grumble. When you come to church to decorate the church for Christmas, and you think that you're going to get to decorate the tree, and they make you change the light bulbs, and you want to decorate the tree. But they send you outside to decorate that tree. And that's not the one I want. And you're out there going, I hate this. This is stupid. You're doing it. Because Rhonda told you to. (laughs) And the pastor said she was in charge of Christmas decorations. And so you're submitting to her will, right? But your will is still there. You will to do something else. So you grumble. But when you lay that down, there's no grumbling. And you can say, someone says, why are you doing that? What a crummy job she gave you. You go, I want to do this. This is fun. And other people come along, you're such a hypocrite. You're lying. You didn't, I heard you talk before and you're like, I hope I get to decorate the tree downstairs. You didn't want to do that. You go, I do now. This is what I was asked to do, so I want to. Do you understand that laying down your will means completely laying it down? Leaving it alone so you never grumble and dispute because now you really do let him have his will in you. And if you're struggling with that, do you know what? Just admit it to God. Say, I'm struggling. My will is at battle with yours. And he'll say, ah, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me fix that. And if you'll let him, he'll help you. 
He's got grace for the moment. He'll work in your life so that you can say, oh, I, I used to fight with God all the time. Now I just want what he wants. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. Now the translation says stars in the world. Holding fast. That means holding on as tight as you can. But literally, it could also mean holding forth at the front. Holding it, holding it out. Holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may not have cause to glory. I may have cause to glory, sorry. Because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And we'll stop there. There's that, that, that beautiful image of Jesus laying down his, his will, his life, his plans for the Father. And we're called to walk in the same steps. So all this time when we've been talking about sons and slaves, and you go, I don't know, which is which, you are first and foremost a son, daughter of the king. That is who you are. But your will, you lay down. And you say, I walk bound to you. In every way, I am bound to you. There's such power in that. Such power in being bound to him because who are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? If you're bound to him, who fights against him? Who could stand against God? Who could who could defeat him? Who could who could ever stand in his way when you bind yourself to his will? You have just said, What in the world could stop me? I'm doing what he called me to do. I'm not on my own road, I'm not on my own plan. Who, if God is for me, who can be against me? Now, I know I'm loved. I know I'm so loved. I know I'm cared for. I know he is the shepherd and the guardian of my soul. So I entrust everything to him because he will guard what I've entrusted to him. I will entrust to him my dreams. I will entrust to him my life. I will entrust to him my family. I will entrust to him my name. I will entrust to him my reputation. I will entrust to him everything I've ever owned. And he will guard what he needs to guard. Would you stand up? The Lord is so good. Lose yourself in him. Lose yourself in him. Jesus lost himself, and when he lost himself, he found himself. Jesus said, whoever will lose his life will find it. What does that mean, lose my life, I'll find it? Does that mean I die? You know, it's got a lot bigger connotations than that. There are those that were called and and, and died for Jesus. And they've got a great honor. The Bible says there's a special crown in heaven for those ones. For those that freely lay down their life. But you know, laying it down your life is not one moment in front of a firing squad. It's the rest of your life starting now. Laying down your life means laying it down, humbling yourself and picking up His. It's a good thing. It's a lifelong thing. Lose yourself in Him. So that you no longer can recognize your own plans. But all you want is what He wants. All you desire is what He desires. Then we stop thinking like slaves a long time ago. We stop thinking like puny little slaves that just go, well, 
if he throws me to the alligators because he likes to watch a good show, I guess he'll do it. If he lets them burn me alive because he desires the smell, then I guess he'll do it. He loves you. Peter, that we talked about so much, when, who learned to entrust himself to God. Paul, same thing. I know whom I have believed is faithful. These men did die for Jesus because they were alive in a time of persecution. They didn't die for Jesus because they just, that was the only way to go to heaven. They didn't die for Jesus because uh, Jesus wanted to watch them die. They died as witnesses. They died bearing his name because they were alive in a time of great persecution and they would not back down. Paul said, I'm done. I'm ready. And he knelt down outside the city gates, put his head on the block, and gave his life. Peter, I know I've told you this before, but the church fathers tell us that Peter escaped many, many times from Rome. God had spared his life time and time again so that he could further accomplish his mission. But when he was done, he was an old man. He had done everything God had called him to do. He received warning that they were coming to his house to arrest him. So he escaped. And he walked out the gates. And as he's walking out of the gates of Rome, he looks and he sees Jesus walking the other way. He says, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus says, I've come again to be crucified. And that old man turns and follows. And he walks. And I don't know, we're not told if he turned himself in or if he just simply went home and started praying until they came and got him. But he gave his life. And his life was a witness to many others. You may say, what was the point of that? Why couldn't he have just died in his sleep? He could have. But when they took his life, when he, they didn't take his life, he laid it down, just as Jesus did. He did it with such boldness, with such joy, with such a lack of fear, that that whole Colosseum knew this man has seen something. For if this was a scam... He wouldn't have died so willingly. If this was all just a, just a man-made religion, he would have run like everyone else. But this man faced his death with boldness, and he seemed happy about what was coming. He was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're probably not going to have to go that way, but your everyday life, you lay it down. When Peter laid his life down, what did he pick up? What happened? He was immediately in the presence of the king. He was immediately filled with all the joy you could ever imagine. He was in heaven. It was not a bad trade to trade in this old crickety body, which had borne so much and was starting to fail, and, and to trade in the stinky city of Rome for the new Jerusalem, the old rickety body for a new body, the presence of of Nero for the presence of Jesus. Don't feel sorry for him. But you're a living example of that. You lay down your life, and it may seem like a big deal right now. It may seem like a big deal on paper to lay down your life for Jesus and, and, and daily walk following his will and not your own. But when you lay yourself down, 
you pick up his name, his identity, his will, his dreams, his life. And the more you empty yourself, the more he fills you. You don't walk around like an empty zombie who's just empty and and, and lacking and hollow. You are filled with his life, his spirit, his power, his joy. There's no better trade. Father, we thank you.